Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about how climate change is impacting world forest growth. We often talk about how deforestation, commercial farming, urban sprawl, and other forms of defoliation contribute to climate change. But what about the other way around? What is climate change doing to trees and other plants? We know that the destruction of plants reduces our planet's ability to sequester greenhouse gases, and that this increases global warming. But what if global warming itself is affecting the world's forest and other plants? We're joined today on Zoom by Dr. Rohan Shetty, Faculty of Environment, University of Jan Evangelista, Virginia, and Ustad Nod Laban, that's in the Czech Republic. Dr. Shetty is a research scientist working in climatology and dendroecology. His doctoral research was on the response of vegetation to modern climate warming, and he is now doing postdoctoral work on the response of trees to environmental pollution. Hi, Rohan. Hey, uh, so, thanks for having me here, Mr. Grove. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the concepts of environmental change versus climate change and how they affect our perceptions of the issue. What are your thoughts? Um, it's, it's, it's a very nice uh, starting point, I believe, because um, see how we perceive and how change is. There's always a certain level of gap. Uh, our perception to change is um, commonly very localized, but um, change in itself is not an individual phenomenon. It connects us all uh, in a certain way. And uh, so, say, uh, when commonly people ask me that something changes in the Arctic, why should the world be worried uh, about it? So it's like we always say that the Arctic is the nose, but when you get a common cold, the whole body is impacted. So it's something of the same sort, that change at one place is never individual. It is always impacting us through different levels. And so is the case with our uh, trees uh, here uh, in Central Europe and also uh, in the Arctic, that when change happens over here, um, we see the ripples of the change go all across the world. So uh, when we say our perception of change, I'm trying to say that we are not independent of it. No one person is individualized and no person is independent of this massive global phenomenon of climate change that we see today. So, um, yes, that's that's. And the idea of environmental change versus climate change. I mean, they're in, I'm hearing you say they're intermingled. I mean, they're they're really two faces of the same phenomena. Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, just to slightly expand on it, uh, usually media just gets this coverage of climate change and people perceive it to be more towards global warming. But as see, in the environment, everything is constantly changing. So, I mean, change is the only sort of permanent thing uh, in the environment. So um, climate tag or like the global warming tag is one aspect of this change. Um it impacts us in a certain way uh, that it is it it kind of questions our existence. So we bring this to the forefront. But um, all the beings of this planet, may it be a small ant or may it be a whale that migrates from a place to b, or may it be birds that migrate from the north to the south, they all are working on a certain level of a biological uh, intuition or a, a biological clock. So this environmental change is happening synchronously all the time. So understanding this change is the first level in the uh, in the biosphere to understand where we stand with this change because we are a part of this evolution. 
Now, the second part comes where in climate change or in more um, uh, commonly called as global warming is impacting us and our lifestyle. So though these are two mingled concepts, they are many times portrayed differently because climate change gets better of the media. So uh, yes, so that is why I say that our perception of how our lifestyles are, how our consumption patterns are, they are more of an inside out driven change. Whereas how we are educated about our environment, usually with the lens of climate change coming in between, uh, that is where our perception of our environment slightly changes. And so I say that though they are sourced from the same origin uh, of change, they are kind of uh, portrayed differently in, in, in uh, our education and in our media is, is, is what I was saying. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about from the inside or from the outside. What are your thoughts on climate policies? Does this climate action come from within the individual or from outside? So, uh, or at least that is my opinion, that uh, climate action, when we say uh, it, it, it usually is stapled to how uh, cultures or how civilizations or how uh, governments in, in, uh, in the right term are looking at uh, climate policy, hmm? uh, wherein uh, most of the world focus today lies around this concept of sustainability, of how sustained growth over time could be achieved. Um, however, we see that though this is a very beautiful thought and though this is uh, fairly eudaimonistic in a certain way, it doesn't really percolate into, um, it has not completely successfully percolated uh, to revive our forests or to revive our ecosystems. So. Um, I think there needs to be more done with this climate action theme, but not just with certain set of policies like sustainability, but also to bring how we perceive our environment into our basic education, to bring this awareness into the basics of our education. And only then we can actually have this environmental action or climate action be more successful or more impactful than what we have today. Sure, sure. Let's turn to some of the hard science you, you've been researching. You've identified plants as proxies to measure climate change and develop environmental strategies. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so um, the main uh, branch of science that I work with is known as uh, dendrochronology, or uh, also these days uh, the word dendroecology or climatology has also been evolving. So um, what I really do is... Um, I work with the response of trees in different ways to the environment. So let me just slightly um, elucidate on um, how 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 the science works or why it or why it is important. So uh, what is dendrochronology? Uh, the word comes from two words known as dendros and ecology. So dendros actually means um, change over time or a chronology of changes over time. Now, uh, it was originally uh, coined looking at tree rings. So let me just tell you what tree rings are. If you just uh, slice open a tree, you will see that there are rings inside the tree. Um, so if you take a, like a small cross section, you will see that there is an arrangement of rings. Um, and this and these arrangement of rings has got immense information about how the tree has been growing over the years. Um, this also records a lot of information about the environment because if the tree was growing in a conducive environment the tree did well so you you get a fat ring and if the tree uh, was undergoing many stresses then you have got a thin ring 
So this in itself is reflecting how the environment was projecting itself onto the tree. So in a way, uh, you are having a lot of environmental information recorded in these thin or fat rings, as we say. Now, why is this important? Uh, it is important, A, to study uh, how environment has been changing in a in a contemporary sense, and B, it is also very useful to reconstruct the past climate because uh, we have, say, thermometers or um, instruments or standardized instruments to record climate data only for the last, at the best, 200 years. But we have got trees which have been naturally recording data for us for at least a few thousand years. So how do we really reconstruct this past climate? We ask the trees. And then uh, looking at uh, the sequence of these tree rings, we can make mathematical models, tally them with the instrument data that we have today. And that is how we reconstruct the past climate. So uh, using um, or the use of dendroecological data is um, at the core of a lot of IPCC research. So IPCC is Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And a lot of its uh, predictions or even mathematical reconstructions bases itself uh, around tree ring or dendroecological data. So that's, that's just one part of the tree. But let me tell you that every part of the tree, starting from the root to the tip of the leaf, everything records information about the environment. So recent tree rings, I mean, this is how um, uh, science you're working on here. What does it inform us about current state of climate change? I mean, specifically, we have this argument about whether climate change is man-made or not. When you look at all that history of climate data and then look at, you know, the recent 50 years or so, what does that tell you about climate change? Um let me answer this in two parts. Uh, the first part uh, is more to, to, to do with how real is our data. Let's start, okay. let's take a step back and let's question ourselves that how real is the data? What is the scale of the data? And uh, where are we in terms of this change? Man-made or not is slightly, um, let's take that question maybe a step later. Okay. So let me give you the uh, scale of the data. So, um, uh, it reminds me of a big calendar that we had uh, in our lab, wherein we had squeezed the entire age of the earth into one year. So let me let me kind of give you a scale. So if you just imagine 1st of January to be the birth of the earth, which is like 4.7 billion years ago, and 31st of December, where we are at, uh, where uh, the human race is created and um, we have evolved enough to be sentient and uh, we are playing our little analytical game. So let me tell you that uh, human evolution has been in the last, say, uh, four or five minutes of the 31st of December. Now, climate scientists come up and say that um, we are going to have a 0 0.5 degrees to 2 degrees Celsius average increase in temperature globally. Now, if you ask yourself that a little species that was created like in the last few minutes uh, of this grand scale of evolution comes up and says that such a small change of only 0 0.5 to 2 degrees Celsius is going to happen and is going to impact us. Uh, you might say we are looking for a needle in a haystack. How, how, how real are these um, measurements? I mean, that would be the logical question, isn't it? Sure. But uh, then it will be only logical to say that uh, we must reconstruct our past 
in a very robust way to come up and say that this little change is going to happen and is going to impact us. And that is where beings which are much older to us, trees, um, come into play. And that is where we have to ask these questions to all the other oddities of nature who have been around us or who have been here longer than us. And trees uh, or reconstruction of climate data is uh, plays this little crucial role over here. That is the reason uh, there are different proxies like ice cores, like tree cores, uh, like peat cores, which help us study how environmental changes and climate change included happen to these planets over the different millennia. So we have got the ability to reconstruct our past climate at least to, uh, say, um, close to a billion years using different forms of proxies. Some are like magnetic anomalies, which are helping us reconstruct very large timescales, whereas you can have literally uh, trees, uh, which are, say, a few hundred years, uh, that can give us very precise information about contemporary climate. Now, when we put these levels of information into mathematical models together, we can say that, okay, this change of 0 0.5 to 2 degrees Celsius is very much real. It is happening to us. Now let's come to your next question about, is this man-made or is this uh, a natural phenomenon? Let, let me put it this way, that uh, Earth has undergone warming and cooling cycles many times before. But there is two parts to what's happening in the last uh, 50 or 60 years, uh, is that A, um, human life in terms of civilization is getting more and more natural resource dependent in the sense that we are losing a certain level of biosynchrony to kind of evolve with the cycles of nature. Uh, we can perhaps expand on this slightly later, but um, that is where our question really comes from, that have, are we driving this change? So the simple answer in the grand scale is no. But are we accelerating this change to a point that it is making our own existence uh, questionable? The answer is yes. Um, so uh, to grandly answer your question, no, the Earth does go does undergo a warming cycle. Uh, but is it man-made? Yes, we are accelerating the cycle to a certain extent, making it not livable for us, which is the more concerning point. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the planet's going to survive. It's it's you know gotten warm and cool before, and species have gone extinct before. Obviously, our concern with climate change right now is: is it going to make us go extinct? Expand more. You talked about biosynchronicity between humans and nature. Can you expand on that? Yes. Uh, maybe I can also pick up on the last point: why sustainability fails, because okay. that is where biosynchrony begins. Let me. Uh, let me kind of slightly go into the um, fundamentals of sustainability first and then uh, expand slightly on biosynchrony. So uh, the concept of sustainability largely means uh, or it largely reads to meet the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future, keeping in perspective the finite nature of the resources that we have. So um, it sounds to be a very uh, accommodative concept when you hear it at the first glance. But uh, if you look at it closely, the last part of the sentence, keeping in mind the finite nature of the resources that we have. And if you just slightly look around, there is ample of sunlight. There's ample of water around. It's seawater, uh, but there is ample of water around. 
there's ample of minerals around, then how can you say that the resources are finite? If you just take a step back and question uh, ourselves, that how, how, how do you completely say that the resources are finite? The question really comes is the transferability of the usable resources, which are finite. Now, we are told that to meet, to meet the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future, keeping in mind the finite nature of the resources that we have. So uh, in a certain way, we are blaming the resources to be finite. Nowhere in the concept do we really say that we have infinite needs. Okay. Nowhere uh, does our education reflect upon how does an individual look at his needs first, then get synchronized with the environment which is around him. We are always in a certain competitive way taught that bigger is better, more is good. But how much is necessary to fulfill you is a concept that completely lacks in education is what I believe. Because... Uh, Whatever action you might do, you, you might be an engineer, you, you might be an IT professional, nothing teaches you how to, or nothing in the contemporary education, not most parts of it, teaches you how to be in a certain synchrony with your environment and justify whatever actions that you're doing. I'm not saying that one must go to an absolute primitive way of life. I'm saying that one must question what his or her needs really are before kind of getting cultured into this thinking that more is good. And that is where I say that even the fundamental premise of the concept of sustainability that we are taught today, in a way, uh, without questioning our needs, easily points that we have only finite resources and that is our problem. No, that is not our problem. Our problem is that we have infinite needs and the resources and its transferability cannot cope at the speed at which we want things from the environment. So this is where I see that sustainability as a concept fails because it's not giving the complete picture of how an individual also perceives the environment. Now let's come slightly to the concept of biosynchrony. Biosynchrony in animals, uh, say for instance, it's a you can take anything from migration to life cycles of little uh, insects. They all work in a certain biosynchrony. Nobody tells them, okay, it's seven o'clock, butterfly needs to fly, uh, that uh, it's October and the whale needs to go down uh, towards the south. No. How, 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 how do they know? This, I mean, there are tens of uh, so-called logically empirical studies that show that this biosynchrony percolates through different beings in nature without even they being uh, consciously aware of it. They are still doing their part in the environment without disturbing the existence of others. Somewhere where this concept of sustainability, I mean, everybody knows the concept that there are three different uh, uh, pillars. One is the environment, second is the culture or the social aspect, and third is the economy. But economy as an aspect did not exist a few hundred years back. We are biological beings. We are, econ we are not economical beings. And that's the reason uh, these three equally shown pillars are not real because the biological and the environmental pillar are genuinely more dominant. The earth does not care if you have a million or a billion dollars. It's going to say, are you biosynchronous? You survive. You're not biosynchronous. You, you are eradicated or you're substituted. And that is why I say that... Uh, Many times it's also better to look at uh, our historic cultures, our old civilizations, which were close to biosynchrony as a concept, than what we are 
with this concept of sustainability. That's where I think biosynchrony begins and sustainability ends. I mean, we can talk hours about this, but yeah, that's 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 what I mean in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, talk a little bit about your work at the Agurka Research Institute in Pune, India. Your study in vegetation diversity in the Western Ghats, which is the mountain range running along India's western coast. How much is climate change affecting the plants in this region? Um, it does impact, uh, like it impacts all of the ecosystems. Uh, so uh, at Agarkar Institute, we are, um, uh, so th- the department at Agarkar is uh, led by Dr. Mandar Datar. He's the head of the department over there. And we from Europe are collaborating uh, with him and his uh, research group. Um, so uh, just like the Arctic, which is a very sensitive ecosystem with less species, uh, the tropics are also a sensitive ecosystem with many species. Now, uh, let me kind of uh, draw a few parallels over here and why I see that these systems are connected, though they are geographically apart. They are uh, similar in a certain way. And in the Arctic, we must conserve or at least study the patterns uh, of how vegetation is impacted by the uh, by the climate because there are relatively few species, hardly a few hundred species across the Arctic, and they are very sensitive to warming. But in the tropics, uh, especially in the Western Ghats, um, it's not only one of the world's biodiversity hotspot, it is also a hotspot for endemics. So it's kind of the cradle of evolution in a certain way. Because uh, so uh, the systems that we are working on are known as the rock outcrop ecosystems and rock Rock outcrop ecosystems have got many uh, ephemeral and seasonal lakes, um, ponds, which are on top of uh, plateaus and mountains. And we get many endemic species which are uh, living only in these little pockets. So A, it's very diverse. And B, it's also pushing evolution uh, in a certain way because there are many endemics which are very like newly formed. So um, what heating does to these systems is that... Uh, now we see that um, grasses or sedges or uh, plants which can tolerate more heat are more successful in these ecosystems as compared to the other plants. Now, what does this really do is that A, as warming increases, the diversity decreases because only plants which are competent or which are resilient to drought will survive better. This kind of... um, uh, creates an imbalance in the competition uh, in space. And this in turn kind of uh, increases only uh, certain types of plants more over the other. I mean, there was a um, very recent study, uh, just uh, yeah, it came out like two months back where uh, scientists from Agarkar Institute found nearly 64 species which are desiccation tolerant. That means that um, they can survive completely without water for close to eight to nine months of the year. So not a single drop of water. And just when the rain comes, the whole system will go fresh green. So these plants uh, will get more successful in time. I mean, so uh, just taking a step back in the grand scheme, uh, heating will give preference to plants which are more drought and uh, desiccation tolerant, whereas other plants have lesser chance of survival, and there will be a lot of dieback, possibly. So that's where the sensitivity of these ecosystems come in, and that's that's what we are trying to study over there. You were using the term endemic uh, a little while ago, endemic species, basically meaning those species only live in this one place. It just yes. exists there and no place else in the world. Yes. So if, if they're not 
drought tolerant or, you know, these things you said, they're going to die off and cease to exist. We're talking extinction of species. Yes, 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 yes absolutely, absolutely. You also mentioned earlier about um, your studies that were showing that there's a climate-driven trend towards plants, increased height, larger leaves, greater seed mass, that kind of stuff. Why is that significant? Why is that important to your studies? Uh, it's again connected to this particular point uh, that we spoke in the Western Ghats. This is the same um, line of thinking, but this is what is happening in the Arctic. So um, in the Arctic, we studied um, four distinct plant traits. One was plant height. Second was um, uh, the leaf surface area, the nitrogen content in the leaf, uh, and the leaf dry matter content. Uh, we studied uh, plants across nearly 117 sites across the Arctic. It was a study led by Dr. Anna Bjorkman. Uh, and what we were trying to understand is which particular traits in plants make them more successful and what traits over this changing climate will decide which species are more successful uh, in the Arctic. I mean, just to give you an easy analogy, if you are suddenly... Um, uh, in if you're born in a battlefield, then uh, your ability to do uh, better physically is going to give you a better chance of success. If you're born um, into uh, like a group of athletes, your ability to run is going to make you successful in your survival. The same thing with plants. Which particular traits of plants will make them successful in the Arctic is what we were studying. So a consistent finding that we uh, found across the Arctic was plants with greater stem height are good at capturing more sunlight. Their photosynthetic, their photosynthetic activity increases. Also, their uh, ability to retain nutrients in their trunk also improves. And so uh, their ability to withstand uh, like shorter summers and longer winters, which are which is normally supposed to be the case in the Arctic, gives them a better edge over the other plants. Um, let me also say that plants with greater, like greater stem height, also help in greening of the Arctic, which kind of uh, reduces the summer albedo and eventually causes more warming in the Arctic. So, uh, the success of plants in the Arctic greens the Arctic. And then, in turn, this greening of the Arctic warms the Arctic more because darker surfaces entrap more heat. So it's a, it's a feedback system, you know, where the, yes. the, the warmer temperatures create more plants that create warmer temperatures. Yes. You know, just yes. accelerates. So you're seeing that in the Arctic. Is, is there a parallel in, in the Ghats, the Western Ghats? I mean, are you seeing that the selection of process there is, is in any way accelerating climate issues? Um. We don't have hard evidence, uh, evidence data for like a positive feedback mechanism that we see in the Arctic. Uh, but nonetheless, we can certainly say that um, what's happening is that um, external invasive species are getting more successful in the guts, reducing the diversity. So um, uh, though we don't have like a specific uh, parallel uh, like we have in the Arctic, we can say that the general diversity of the plants in the Ghats is reducing and that in itself is um, uh, quite uh, concerning because this diversity is not, uh, so vegetation alone again is not getting impacted. Say for instance, uh, 
one feedback mechanism we found lately is that because of the erratic patterns of the rains that are happening, the insects on the mangoes are not eaten by the birds that migrate through these zones. So what happens is that uh, only a certain level of vegetation dies back only uh, or there's an insect outbreak because there is favored vegetation and then uh, something like mangoes, which is of uh, importance ecologically and also economically, also just go off the rails in the market. So uh, though uh, it's not a linear positive feedback mechanism that we see in the Arctic, there is certainly a lot of degradation that we see in terms of diversity in the guts. You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with daughter, Dr. Rohan Shetty about how climate change is impacting world forest growth. I think it's really fascinating that you're doing studies in the Arctic and in the subtropic region of the gods. I mean, you're, you're comparing two very different ecosystems and finding similarities. Um, you've also done studies on um, comparing juniper trees. I think that was a 2021 study. Um, 16 different European sites ranging from the Mediterranean, you know, between the Alps and the Urals. So that's kind of a big region. You reported regional differences in growth responses there, growth responses to climate warming. Um, so again, similar um, similar impacts from these other regions. What were the differences and, and the significance of that study? Okay, so um, in this particular study, what we did was uh, we were comparing junipers uh, to um, juniper growth in different dimensions. So why I say that uh, is that... Uh, because you get a juniper tree in a completely tree form um, in uh, the lower temperate regions across, I mean, starting from, say, Europe towards Mediterranean, whereas you get the same juniper as a shrubwide form when you go to the Ural Mountains in, say, uh, uh, the subarctic or Russia. So, uh, A, as this species is so widespread, you can kind of take this as a good benchmark because it has a good recording capacity. Now, even if you have a small juniper shrub about that size, it can be a few hundred years old. So it's it's it can have climate and uh, and environmental information for maybe four to five hundred years. Whereas if you go and have a look at a, a, a juniper tree um, uh, in the southern temperate zones of say southern Germany or um, uh, even the northern Mediterranean, it it'll be a massive juniper tree. And uh, it still has the ability to record this environmental information. That's the reason we chose junipers. Now to uh, answer your question, we compared juniper shrubs and trees and other trees in the same ecosystems. In the Mediterranean, which is kind of the uh, southern distribution margin of junipers, and also in the Arctic, which is kind of the northernmost distribution margin of the junipers. So what we found that um, in the Alps or in the high altitudinal regions, um, shrubs are getting more and more uh, successful at higher elevations. So let me uh, break it down. So the shrubs are having a higher altitudinal migration as compared to the competitive trees that are around them. So junipers are doing much better uh, in these regions at high altitudes. Now let's look at the high latitudes. So just the way uh, shrubs are having a higher altitudinal migration, they are also having a higher latitudinal migration. So when I say plants migrate, what I'm saying is that shrubs, which were initially growing at lower latitudes, now 
you can see that they are at a higher latitude. The way this works is that shrubs are kind of, uh, we say they are the frontline vegetation. Shrubs decompose permafrost. When permafrost decomposes, even at high latitudes or at high altitudes, it makes more water available in the system. So shrubs start colonizing uh, these ecosystems. And once there is more water available behind the shrub, follow the trees, then the trees start colonizing these ecosystems. So even in the Mediterranean, we could see this same pattern that first the shrubs march ahead and then the trees follow. Of course, this is a very slow process. It takes uh, like 50, 60 years, but we can easily map this migration uh, by different age class studies in these ecosystems. And what we found was um, that shrubs are now getting more and more successful at higher altitudes and higher latitudes. That also means that trees with a better drought resilience will get more successful in these ecosystems, greening these ecosystems and reducing the amount of glaciers and thermofrost um, and permafrost, sorry. And you kind of touched on that earlier, that loop where more green grows into these regions, which actually increases the heating, but it's the heating that's letting these shrubs migrate to these higher latitudes and higher altitudes. Maybe just to add on one small point with the junipers is that we also found something interesting. Again, this again goes back to the traits part of it, but even different parts of the shrub have got different environmental recording capacities. Say, for instance, uh, if you have a juniper shrub, which is lying flat uh, on the ground, which is much more exposed to uh, the snow and the earth. Uh, and whereas you have the top part of the uh, trunk, which is also uh, like, which is more exposed to uh, the macro environment, as we would say, like the more uh, precipitation or the general air temperature, we could see that um, even within a shrub, when we look, when we looked at uh, the growth patterns of these juniper rings or tree rings, um, even within juniper shrubs, we saw that uh, the parts of the rings which were more closer to the snow surface were better at estimating uh, like uh, the ground surface temperatures, whereas the higher parts of the uh, uh, of the juniper stems, which were much more growing erect or prostrate, were better at recording the general climate or the air surface. Uh, were better at recording the air temperature. So even within a shrub, we could find that different parts of the individual have the ability to record different levels of environmental information. Well, that's fascinating. Your current research is into the response of trees to environmental pollution. What yes. kind of pollutions are you working with? So uh, currently we are working with, uh, or we are working on a site uh, which is on the border of Germany and the Czech Republic. Formerly, this area was also known as the Black Triangle. Um, through the, I mean, starting from the 60s to the late 90s, this area was heavily mined for uh, different uh, minerals such as aluminium, cobalt, nickel. Uh, what this really did was that a big chunks of forests were. Uh, suddenly used up for mining purposes and big chunks of uh, the Krushnai Hore and the Krokonoshe Mountains uh, were used for uh, mining. What this did was this created a lot of uh, mining-based uh, pollution that came into these local ecosystems. Um, a byproduct, an important byproduct of this pollution was mercury. 
apart from mercury uh, sulfur uh, different com- different compounds related to sulfur dioxide uh, nitrogen oxide were also emitted but a lot of mercury stayed around in these ecosystems so um, the czech and the german government took a lot of drastic measures to kind of see how levels of mercury are there in the environment and that's where our study began um, to see how mercury gets accumulated in the trees so there is two ways that happens one is through the root uptake and second is through the foliar uptake like through the leaves and this mercury does get accumulated uh, through the stumps and different parts of the tree so what we are looking at is that a can trees be used as a good bio indicator of uh, mercury pollution in the environment and b does this really impact the growth of the trees in itself so uh, yeah that's what that that's what we are looking at are you able to measure the um, the pollutants that are being absorbed through the foliage yes uh, so um, again more detailed studies need to be done on this but we are uh, fairly certain that passively through uh, the stomatal openings in the leaves itself there is a foliar uptake and there is also a root based uptake of mercury in the trees now um, only the thing is that different species have different capacities to uh, or have different capacities to uptake mercury and that is where our study stands right now that we are trying to see how different species have got different accumulation capacities and uh, how can we really uh, even understand the pathways better so that we understand the accumulation mechanism better if these two things are um, uh, understood more properly we can potentially say that trees can be good archives of reconstructing past pollution just the way they are good archives of reconstructing the past climate so yeah mm-hmm. I see. I see. And your study of the trees, and you're looking at pollutants and such. Uh, you had any measurements that suggest that climate change is is making trees more susceptible to the pollutants, or even even having a moderating effect? How, how does climate change play into this pollution uptake? Sure. Um, so again, uh, a multi-leveled answer. Uh, a simple answer: Yes, uh, climate change does impact uh, trees. Uh, in polluted areas uh, if not anything they impact the trees in polluted areas more because pollution in itself has had impact on this uh, on the growth of trees so at least on the border of germany and czech republic we see massive forest diebacks they are largely known to be there because of two reasons one is the bark beetle uh, event that has um, so bark beetles are uh, beetles uh, that are uh, that kind of impact the barks of uh, trees and this causes major diebacks into forests you will see like massive chunks go suddenly brown and then there's a massive forest dieback the second part is that due to pollution the vitality of these trees have already it has already gone down so uh, again in the same region through the 80s and the 90s with this mercury pollution there were also uh, massive acid rains and acid rains caused a lot of burnout of spruce needles which impacted the trees in the first place now you have these um, environmental polluting uh, detrimental effects as an impact a and then you have got a warming impact as impact b put them together it really um, 
causes a havoc in a system which is already fragile. So yes, uh, unfortunately, synergetically, uh, climate change and pollution impact these forest ecosystems, and uh, we can expect that there will be moss, uh, there will be massive diebacks in the coming years. Also, this fact that um, a lack of good understanding of environmental management also has created enough disasters. I mean, just to give you an example again of the same ecosystem that we are working on, uh, that post diebacks after the acid rains, the government policies then decided that, oh, let's put spruce uh, over here and have monocultures of spruce, wherein, whereas these ecosystems were m more of beach ecosystems. Now, spruce is not a very fire tolerant species in a certain way. In the last two or three years, we have seen that there have been massive forest fires in these ecosystems causing uh, A, a lot of property damage and B, big chunks of forest have, I mean, thousands of hectares have just burnt out because of bad management. So uh, to add a component to your question, it's not only bad pollution and climate change, but it's also bad policies that have because they wanted sustainable forestry, which was completely misinterpreted. And now we have uh, a triple whammy in a certain way. <laughs> yes, we do. So all kind of coming together there, you know, the failure of sustainability. Um, you're talking about ecological management um, and our education systems. I know I know the university you're working at now, the Jan Evangelista Virginia. I mean, it's a relatively young university. It was just established in 1991. But I'm fascinated that its mission is the implementation and development of higher education and scientific research to protect the environment. I mean, that's our entire yes. mission is to provide education on protecting the environment. I think that's a wonderful concept. How, how important is that type of higher education in fighting climate change and these other environmental issues? Uh, yes, uh, they have got uh, a fairly well-defined and uh, good outset to the mission. And I think that this is something that everybody across the world should take, that education should come at, uh, so environmental education and self-awareness. We, we come back to the same concept of how we are associated to the environment uh, should come at uh, a very preliminary level in education. Uh, this university more focuses on uh, how transboundary pollution is impacting uh, the forests over here, but uh, they also somehow want to percolate this uh, into uh, middle school or even higher school education. That's the reason they also have a lot of programs that run with uh, many schools in the area uh, so that um, pupils in this area are more aware of what their local problems with the local ecosystem are are and then somehow they the idea is that local people starting from a very young age should be self-aware of their environment and self-aware of the problems that their environment are facing so if you grow up with this then finally you somewhere intuitively start finding solutions to this and that's the reason um, this university has kind of aimed at uh, making environmental awareness uh, be a part of not just university, but also um, uh, primary and pre-primary education in the local area. How do you expand that outside of that local area? Um, so uh, we are doing uh, something quite similar uh, through many schools in India, but I'll just speak about the program that I am working with. Uh, so there's a program known as the Tribal Mensa Nurturing Program, wherein we are looking at giftedness 
in tribal and underprivileged communities in remote areas of India. The idea is to first identify gifted students and second is nurture them to be self-aware of their environment because they are in a certain way, um, uh, though we see them to be remote communities, they are actually living in one of the most fragile and interesting uh, ecosystems of the world. Unfortunately, the education system is not equipped to teach them how to be aware of this environment. Education system still focuses on making engineers and IT professionals who are making more money, but have a relatively lesser self-awareness of what their environment is. So uh, through this program, what we are trying to do is that A, we are using the cultural, eco we are using the local culture, making uh, small activities and games to nurture these intelligence and uh, see, using these activities, we are making these young pupils uh, more self-aware of how their environment is so that eventually they are motivated to conserve this environment. This addresses uh, many questions. One is they find pride in their environment. And once a person is proud or if he feels the connect, he does not uh, aim at migrating towards the cities. B, as he is uh, so what we say is there is two parts of education. One is active learning and second is passive learning. As he is growing up in this environment, there's a lot of cultural knowledge and a, a, a lot of passive learning that this pupil has by himself. It's just that he's not aware that this is important. So bringing this awareness at that level has given us miraculous results that we have young pupils who can identify so many forest seeds and now are working very hard to conserve, protect, and if not develop their ecosystems. So yes, we do have uh, such projects running all across India, but uh, the Tribal Mensa Nurturing Program is, is uh, the, the project that I work for. And uh, yeah, we, we, we are trying our level best to somehow use cultural knowledge, uh, traditional knowledge and contemporary education uh, in a certain synergy to uh, create better environmental awareness. You've also created a series of workshops on the basics of environmental analytics. Tell us about that. So uh, more about the environmental analytics is uh, what I realized, or, or maybe this is just slightly true, uh, more for the Indian context, that uh, somehow biology and mathematics gets separated in uh, the Indian education system. And somehow uh, I see that a lot of biologists or um, uh let's just say uh, people from uh, like non-mathematical fields have got a certain phobia towards mathematics this is something that i've seen through uh, a lot of disciplines of biology and what i wanted to do is that actually there's a lot of potential in data science to answer a lot of questions in uh, environmental changes so my concept was to make the understanding of data science more enjoyable for students, make the concept of statistics um, more uh, in context with uh, ecological or environmental education, and somehow um, get the phobia of mathematics and data science away from biology. I want to see somehow that this is taught synergetically and uh, one discipline should benefit from the other. At the same time, somewhere I also want to show that statistics or data analytics is a tool. 
use it in the right context. And there are many contexts where this tool is not useful. So when to use the tool and when not to use the tool uh, should be taught properly. And that is where I uh, started off with this program of environmental analytics. Uh, and the whole idea is that uh, anybody ranging from like an undergrad student to um, uh, absolutely um, a, a researcher uh, or who's a postdoctoral researcher, if he has any problem uh, which has an ecological context and he wants to um, use data science to solve this problem, the person should have a free forum to come express his problems and uh, then there are 10 people who can maybe help him out with programming, with statistics, with whatever level of analytics that he needs. So um, yeah, I started off with this program and uh, it's completely freely available. You can come and post uh, your uh, uh, data science or ecological data science based problem and uh, we'll try our level best to answer it for you for free. Uh, the whole idea is that uh, students from biology and ecological disciplines should get more connected with the power of data science. That's great. Um, where can people go to learn about that program and, and any of your other work? Uh, so uh, there is two. Uh, uh, so there's. So we have got a website known as theenvironmentalanalytics.com. Uh, okay. That's quite simple. And a second is uh, that if you're a student and if you want uh, to kind of uh, say, uh, express your problem saying that, okay, I'm trying to do so-and-so uh, simulation or I'm trying to uh, do some uh, some particular sort of statistics and I'm not able to uh, go around the programming problem out of it. Then we have got a Facebook group known as Bharat Environmental Analytics. You just come there, post your problem and we'll try our level best to solve it. So um, yeah. So that's 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 it, uh, the two places. And every now and again, uh, we do offline workshop for uh, for students in India, and we do online workshops for students internationally. Uh, and we usually post our workshops and uh, the times for these workshops um, on uh, theenvironmentalanalytics.com. Okay, very good. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.